Welcome back to Not Too Busy to Write. I'm Penny Windsor, author and book coach. Today, I'm talking with Susie Redding. She's a chartered psychologist and qualified yoga teacher, and Susie has spent her career in various different ways, empowering people with the skills to nourish themselves. She's the author of eight books, the latest of which is Rest to Reset, The Busy Person's Guide to Pausing with Purpose. As well as talking to Susie about her journey from expert to author of eight books, we talk about what rest actually looks like, the problem with some of the current conversations around burnout, and moving towards an idea that rest is about rebalancing and how that looks different for each one of us. We also talk about relationship building and publishing, saying yes to opportunities, and growing your authority as an expert in your field. If you enjoyed the episode today, please do follow and leave a rating and review. It really does help others to find the podcast. And if the topics discussed today um, interest you, then you may also enjoy my weekly newsletter, which covers all things creativity, creating time to write, and much more. You can sign up by going to pennywinsorwrites.com, or um, there is also a link in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Susie. Thank you, Penny. It's always a joy to be in your company. I'm so pleased that you're here today to talk about your new book. Um, but let's start with um, let's start with you. Um, you're a well-being expert. I would love to hear how you describe what it is that you do because it's very multifaceted. It's such a difficult question to answer. <laughs> so uh, I I'm a mum of two. I'm an author. I'm a chartered psychologist. I'm a qualified yoga teacher. And I also spent a decade working as a personal trainer. And all of those different modalities, all of those different qualifications draw themselves together beautifully to empower people with healthy habits, uh, with nourishing skills. So that's what I do, whether that's um, one-to-one in coaching, whether that's corporate talks, whether that's through my writing, that is what I feel that I'm put on this earth today. <laughs> I love that. That's very, I don't know why you're saying it's difficult to explain. You've just explained that absolutely beautiful, beautifully. And I would also, um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to warn the listeners that you're also Australian and I'm Australian. And, and so my accent might get stronger <laughs> as the episode goes on. It always comes out more when I'm talking to other Australians. So there you go, listener, you can enjoy my lovely accent coming to the forefront. Um, so you're, your work, like you're saying, is multifaceted. You do one-to-one work with clients. You work with corporate clients. You're also a co-founder of Nourish App. Um, and so it, it's very multifaceted. So I'd like to know more about like why books? Why did you decide that books were a really good place for your particular expertise? Uh, okay. So we're going to start with um, my glorious failure. Yes. <laughs> let's do that. Let's start I, there. That sounds great. Let's start there. I always wanted to be a writer. I have loved writing, like, for as long as I can remember. Um, I've still got a little laminated book that I made, I think, when I was somewhere between my youngest is eight, my eldest is 12, somewhere between those years. I've got this little book that I wrote. Um, So when it came time to deciding university degrees, I had my heart set on a communications degree because I wanted to be a writer. I worked my ass off. I got a great score and I missed out on communications by 0.2 of a mark. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm bereft. Like 
that was the one thing I wanted to do. And very thankfully, I've got a very wise old brother who said, do you know what? You actually know how to write. You don't need to go and study to become a writer. Go and study something that you will write about. And I was like, oh, okay. And um, I'd always been interested in psychology. So I, I did a bachelor degree in psychology and partway along through that degree, um, they changed the qualifications so that you couldn't just become a psychologist after four years. You had to go on and do master's. So I ended up going on and doing my master's degree. Um, and 20 years later, I'm now writing about psychology. So Your there you go. brother had a lot of foresight. That's really, what incredible advice. Mm. Absolutely incredible advice. And I had no idea about that, about that either, that you had started off wanting to be a writer and the psychology came yeah. second. God, that's so fascinating. Um, yeah. We're going to talk a bit more about that later in the episode, about your journey to, to writing um, book number, Rest to Reset. Your latest book is book number six. Have I got that right? It's number eight. Oh my goodness. Number eight. Okay. So we'll eight. talk about that Crazy. journey to number eight in a minute, but let's talk about rest to reset. Now, the busy person's guide to pausing with purpose. There is, you, well, you and I know each other a little bit and, um, and I've known your work for a while. And one of the things that's always, always, always drawn me to your work is your approach to a topic that in other people's hands can be very shallow. <laughs> um, and um, and you and you bring, again, it's I think partly because of your, your multifaceted kind of professional background, but also your personal experience as well and what you bring to this topic. But what's interesting to me about this latest book, um, which is all about rest, and you have written about rest before, and this is just a deep dive into rest, is that it feels like it's coming at a very interesting time. I don't know about you, but it feels like obviously the last few years have been crisis mode and dealing with crisis. And I feel like perhaps this year, 2023, is the first time in three years I'm actually can think much more strategically about getting back into, I guess, looking after myself with the long-term in mind rather than just the crisis mode that I've been in for a few years. So this, it does seem like the right book for the right time. Is that how it felt for you, that we were just maybe perhaps ready to come out of that kind of reactive mode that we were in for a few years? Yeah, I, I think that um, cumulative state of depletion that you've described, we were all feeling that. And I think <sighs> we learned some really important lessons about rest during the pandemic. Yeah, we were more sedentary than ever before, but I I, I wouldn't say we were well rested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think um, the time is ripe for taking a fresh approach to rest, and that's what I wanted to present in the book, that we need to challenge our associations with rest. We need to first feel like it's okay for us to do it, but then what does it look like? Mm. Yeah. Now that life is opening up again, we've got more choice, there's more freedom. Yeah, it is it's the perfect time to take a look at our relationship with rest and and let's broaden that toolkit and then yes, spot on rather than just fighting fires. Let's take a look with that future focus of of, of creating a life where there is sustainability and longevity mm. in our careers and in in, you know, our lives itself. Right. Mm. Um, that's so interesting because, again, one of the things that I really like about your work, it's very practical. Um, 
and you're all about teaching people the skills rather than just talking about these as sort of abstract ideas. And um, and the way you just said that, what rest actually looks like. And in this book, you go into that in detail about this idea of like, what does it actually look like? And I love that because um, I obviously burnout and rest is a conversation that's happening very widely in the media at the moment. And I'm not sure how you feel about how it's often discussed in mainstream media. To me, it often feels like it's missing the mark quite a bit, that it's almost um, a discussion that's happening amongst quite a lot of privileged people who have who have the ability to make choices that maybe a lot of society don't have. And, and that's, you know, people on very low incomes who have to work very hard just to kind of have meet basic uh, needs. And, and then also all the people who are doing a huge amount of unpaid work which, um, you know, life would collapse without it. So they don't also can't choose to do less of that necessarily. But I guess I was wondering about, um, about, about how you feel about how these topics are being discussed at the moment post-pandemic. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. We, there is far too much emphasis on the individual, mm. yeah, which I address that in the book. You know, most of my titles are about self-care, but not for a minute am I saying that the burden lies, you know, squarely on the shoulders of the individual. What we need are compassionate infrastructure that where people are supported. The fact is we can't have these conversations without addressing those inequities. Mm-hmm. So it's essential that we 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 go there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's true. I think that's what it is, isn't it? It's the individualization of these problems that is part of the problem with the discourse. Um, yeah. When I see somebody who um, doesn't have caring responsibilities and earns a kind of sort of healthy-ish middle-class wage talking about um how they had to kind of emotionally get their head around doing less and not pushing themselves and not hustling and all that kind of stuff, it's interesting but it does seem to me like the tip of the iceberg um, and and not necessarily going to be moving us forward very far, is it? Absolutely. There, there needs to be widespread, large-scale change. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting, your work has always seemed to me quite radical in that sense, this idea of, first of all, radical in the idea that um, that sometimes what we need is, is tiny. Um, rather than huge um, and radical in the sense that sometimes you need to really, really advocate for yourself to get it um, and also that it's not also entirely our, each of our individual responsibility either, that it's a collective responsibility. Um, and to me that's that feels in a way pretty radical compared to a lot of the conversation. Do you feel like sometimes people um, struggle with some of those concepts? Yeah, I, I, I just think we need... We need a multi-pronged approach, don't we? We need strategies that are going to help us in the here and now. Mm. But then we do need we need the revolutionaries out there who are mm. calling for change, and, and we need the kind of change that's necessary. It's so big to get your head around. It's kind of where do we start? Well, at least we can start with these micro moments, and if we can start with a more compassionate approach, we can start with where our where we can take action, what what is something that we can actually do something about? Mm, yeah. You know? Yeah. It's empowering, isn't it? This idea of like, yes, there needs to be collective change, but also in the moment there's something micro that I can do now that gives that 
makes me feel as though I have a little bit of control over how I can um, act and react to the circumstances that I find myself in. Yeah. I mean, we talk an awful lot about, um, you know, in this self-care realm, we talk a lot about soothing. Well, actually, I I don't want to soothe everyone. I actually want to resource people so that they can stand firm and channel their anger in a way that's constructive so that we can create the change that's necessary. Mm. It's not always about putting out the fire. It's about how can we, how can, how can we stand firm? How can we be heard? How can we create that tangible change in our, in our own days, in our own jobs, in our own organizations, in our own family unit? Mm. And it's one of, one of the stories that I first read of yours that really um, made me really interested in your work and your particular approach to this kind of work was um, your experience of being a new mother and how you had such a lot of experience looking after yourself before motherhood, Um, both physically and emotionally. You had a whole range of tools that you were using. Um, you used exercise, you used yoga, you used meditation. Um, you really knew how to look after yourself, and then you became a new mother, and at the same time was were caring was caring for your dying father. And everything about that year forced you to reassess your toolkit and had to build a new one completely from scratch. Could you talk to me a little bit about that process and how it changed how you approach working with other people as well? Mm. I think this is a real common thread. So many of the things that we would normally do to sustain ourselves in periods of squeeze, in times of stress, loss and change can become completely inaccessible to us. And in that time, we know that we need something else, but it can be so hard to articulate a a new toolkit. Um, I guess that's where this rest to reset approach was born. You know, it's 12 years ago. Mm. Um, it was taking a look at where am I at and how, what do I need and how can I meet my needs? And the fact is my needs were completely different. Mm. So the toolkit had to be completely different. And it's not just that, it's the variables that I was embedded in were totally different. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, that was one steep learning curve. But I've spent the last 12 years building on that understanding and the breadth of that toolkit keeps growing and the different ways of conceptualizing it has changed. So when my first book came out, I talked about the vitality wheel, the different ways that we could look after ourselves. In Rest to Reset, I'm getting more granular. I'm taking a look at, okay, so this is how you've used your mind and your body, or these are the kind of environments that you've been in. And what is it that you need to bring yourself back to balance? So it's even more nuanced mm. than my original thinking. But so it just keeps, yeah, my understanding keeps growing. And I hope that um, the application of that understanding gets even easier to use. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah? And I can yeah. see that with this one. And I'd love to ask you about the eight pillars of rest. I'm going to open up right now. So I'm looking at them because when I saw the eight pillars illustrated in the book in a double page spread where you've got these eight, eight different pillars of rest. Um, first of all, the eight areas are kind of more, as you say, granular and nuanced than, than often we talk about when we talk about rest. But the other thing that really struck me as um, I immediately understood 
the point of the book just by looking at this one double page spread because each of the eight pillars you talk about either end of that spectrum. So when it comes to movement, you've got movement at one end and you've got stillness at the other. And each of your pillars have those two ends and neither of them are right or wrong. Both of them are needed by us as humans in different quantities at different times and when we're in different situations. But can you talk me through this, um, these eight pillars and how you came to this idea and how, and how you're finding it's helping people to understand what it is that they need? Sure. When I first started researching rest, um, I came across a lot of different sort of categories or typologies where it was sort of like physical rest, mental rest, social rest, creative rest, that kind of thing. And, and, and that to some extent makes sense. But what that didn't help me do was to identify what I needed in the moment. That didn't tell me do this thing. I wanted something that was more specific that would help people identify, oh, okay, so in terms of movement, well, how much have I moved my body or what kind of movement have I engaged in? Or if I've been still, have I been sitting or have I been standing in stillness? So the whole point of the pillars of rest is to sort of connect people with where they're at and help mm-hmm. them identify what they need. What is the mm-hmm. thing that will bring them back to balance? And I think that was the other thing about rest that just didn't really make sense to me. You know, people were talking about, okay, so physical rest. Is is that is that lying down in Shavasana at the end of a yoga class? Or is that actually the movement of the yoga class? That's but you know, people don't associate movement with rest. They associate mm-hmm lying down in stillness on your own doing nothing yeah when okay so yeah that is a type of rest but actually if you think about um someone that's okay someone that's been on their feet all day in a retail environment yeah they might need stillness lights out like just give me a break kind of thing whereas Mm. if if i've been sat picking at my keyboard day yeah I don't need more stillness sedentary stillness I actually need to get a breath of fresh air with some nature so um the eight pillars of rest is designed to help people identify what they need and how they can meet those needs and I spent an awful long time thinking about what these um pillars would be and in this book I want people to to understand that this is you can make your own pillars Mm. Right. This is just, these are just what I've settled on. And I can't tell you how many conversations I had while I was out walking of my, my morning ritual. I'd drop the kids at school. I'd get a, the best local coffee. I'd go for a walk. I'd pick up the phone. I'd call mum in Australia. I'd be like, okay, so what about this pillar? And she listened to me for hours on end. But those pillars are, we've got movement and stillness. We need to bring ourselves back to balance, whether it's it, there's no right or wrong. It's just thinking about what you need. And then we've got stimulation or a break from stimulation. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we need more energy or actually quite often we need a dissipation of energy. Sometimes we need solitude. Other times we need to be in the company of others. Then it comes down to like how we're using our brain. Have we been engaged in lots of mindful focus? And actually we need more of an opportunity for spacious a free wandering mind, maybe a bit of daydreaming. Um, and then we've got our emotional health. Do we need to to bear witness to our emotions? Or actually, we need a break from our emotions. That's that's also fine. 
And then in terms of challenge or ease, you know, maybe we need something that's comforting, you know, something that's really familiar, or maybe we need something novel, something that piques our curiosity. And then this is the really big one for all the caregivers, for all the nurturers, the educators, the parents. Um, we need a balance between an external focus, giving, and an internal focus or receiving. So this is another way that we can bring ourselves back to balance. I just, there's so much I identify with in these pillars. Oh my goodness, it's so crazy. And it's in a way, I think I've been, and maybe because as well, I've been working very hard on this for many years, as you know, with um, you were one of the interviewees in my book and we discussed it at great length, this idea of like looking after what it is when we're caregivers of looking off, looking inwards to see what we need. But, um, but you know, just one um, one example being stimulation. I'm in a very high stimulation house. Um, there is, it's the first day back after half term, let's just say that. And I am relishing the silence. <laughs> um, but there is, um, it's sort of actually almost hard to explain just how intense the stimulation is here. And because I get used to it, I sort of forget, but it doesn't mean that I don't need just because I'm used to it, I don't, it's not that I don't need breaks, but, um, I can sometimes forget. And when I, when I, I can tell when my reserves are low, when I suddenly start noticing how much stimulation I'm getting. And one of the things that happens is that my son asks me the same questions over and over and over again, but for hours on end. But if I don't reply, he'll get really upset. So I have to reply. There's kind of a thing I go through and I can kind of go into auto mode a little bit with it because they're the same things over and over again. But um, but because it's very intensely stimulating, um, I have to I have to build things into my week where I take all the stimulation away completely. And one of the things that I found that I really love doing is going for a run because nobody can talk to me. Um, I'm outside, nobody can approach me. Um, I can't take anyone with me. Um, it's not like exercising in the house you know, on a yoga mat where people could walk in the room and talk to me. Um, literally, like I'm, I'm literally running away from everyone. And that's actually, I've realized one of the kind of counteractive things I can do to the stimulation, even though in a way, like um, running is still a very active thing. People wouldn't think about it as rest, but to me, it feels like a rest from um, listening. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There's a beautiful freedom in that. Mm. Yeah. I, I use running in exactly the same way. Yeah. And when I don't have the energy for that, then it's walking. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? How, of course, because we, we, what we need changes so much over time in different seasons of our life. And the idea that, you know, if I could have told 20 something me that running would feel like rest. <laughs> oh my goodness. I probably would have been quite horrified but it does it's funny isn't it because it's resting um it's not resting my 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 heart and my legs but it's resting a whole part of my brain which needs totally. to rest it yeah. is deeply restorative yeah yeah so again it's just moving away from this like this the association of rest with sedentary stillness you know mm. it's looking at what is it that brings you back to balance what is it that brings you back to harmony mm. what brings you peace that's rest and yeah. that's and that's such an interesting point to make as well because obviously this is a podcast 
which is listened to by writers and most of whom, um, including most professional writers, um, who are doing writing alongside a whole lot of other stuff at the same time, raising families, jobs, running businesses, just like you are running another business as well as writing. Um, and this idea that sometimes it can feel very difficult to give ourselves the time to write, but that sometimes writing for, for many of us is actually a restorative act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's both. It's both. It, it can be gorgeous self-expression. You know, it provides us with the opportunity for, for for mindful focus, for creativity. But we also need to give ourselves a break from it. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be an absence of problem solving and striving and ambition and self-expression. You know, it's yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. How we nourish ourselves as authors? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I feel like it's it's almost the eternal question because I mean, I I know so few people who solely write. Um, they're they're usually running a business or speaking or um, writing, doing freelance journalism or teaching or various different other things at the same time. So there's always a lot of balls to juggle. But this idea of um, of it, how it can be both incredibly stimulating but potentially restorative but also that we need rest from that as well. And every day that's going to look different. Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Oh, that's the struggle, isn't it? But so, um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Knowing your work quite well, it's it's so wonderful to see it laid out like this because there's so much I can see of myself in this. And to have this idea, like a, to have like a toolkit that's specifically laid out that you can kind of go to and be like, okay, that suits me. Oh, that doesn't suit me. I can't quite figure out what's going on with me at the moment. Why is my usual thing not working? And then to have a place to go where you can be like, oh, I hadn't actually considered doing that instead. Um, So it's incredibly practical and helpful. I'm so thrilled that it's landed as I'd hoped. We need a roadmap. I think for yeah. so many people, that stumbling block is, right, I, I know I'm feeling depleted or I'm feeling jittery or I'm feeling disconnected. But what do I do next? What do I do with this knowledge? Yeah. So it's, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that that reframe to rest, thinking of it as it, this is how we reset, I hope that that breaks down a lot of the barriers that we we feel. But then I hope the pillars will help us identify. And then I hope the toolkits then gives us well, this is what you do. I'm going to go and do that thing. This is mm-hmm. what I need. I know that's what I'll do next. And they're really accessible too. So I think for anyone listening who's um, thinking, but I can't go to a yoga class, don't worry. They're not all big, crazy, hour-long things that cost money. They really aren't. They, um, Susie is brilliant for always putting in a variety of suggestions from the teeny micro to the macro. Um, so, yeah, so I would highly recommend. But um, so. I want to talk a little bit about how you've come along on your your publishing journey. So um, you've been, this is your eighth book, and you've been with the same publisher, Asta, the whole, have you been with Asta the whole time? Yeah, I've been really lucky to to work with Asta throughout that whole duration and also um, Ren and Rook, who are also part of Hachette. Mm-hmm. So I have one children's book mm. with Ren and Rook, but everything else has been with with Asta. Yeah, so... Talk me through that. So, so your first book, um, did you write a proposal in the traditional way, or um, and then it went out to publishers, or did they approach you to do some work? How did that first one, that first book, come about? 
it was really convoluted. Um, you first asked me where my writing began, where the book began. Um, Self-Care Revolution, my first book, actually began as a series of blog posts because um, at the time I was doing a lot of walk and talk sessions as a psychologist, which I think is just, it's such a powerful method of delivery for coaching and counselling. However, it's very difficult to take notes. Mm-hmm. So normally in a coaching or a counselling session, people jot down, oh, I'm going to work on this or this is my commitment. Walk and talks just don't facilitate that. So mm-hmm. what I found was that there were there were recurring themes in my sessions and I wanted people to have some kind of resource that they could take away to work with and maybe some action points based on that. So having had a, a whole resource library, of creating a resource library of these things, I'm like, oh, my God, this could be a book. So that's actually where Self-Care Revolution began. Um, and I started writing that book as a, as a way of um, I just had my second child. I wasn't able to go out and work as I as I had previously with, with Ted. I wanted to, I thought, you know, maybe writing a book could be a way of making a financial contribution as well as being, you know, present as I wanted to do in, in motherhood. So I wrote Self-Care Revolution. I just picked up, you know, opened up the laptop and pecked away at the keyboard and, and drew all of these blog posts together with a narrative thread. Um, and I got myself the Writers and Artists Handbook mm-hmm. of the Year and I went through it and I picked three agents that I thought would be a good fit and one of them took me on. Mm. And so I was I was working with Jane of um, Graymore Christie and um, we created the proposal together. Even though I'd already had this manuscript, I hadn't even shown Jane the manuscript. I'd just given her what I, you know, what I'd put into the proposal document. And funnily enough, um, a friend of mine interviewed me for um, a piece that she was writing in You magazine on self-care. And Kate, um, Kate Adams, who was um, commissioning editor for Asta, read that, got in touch with me directly. And I said, oh, funnily enough, yes, I do have a book on self-care. And Jane was a wonderful advocate and, and managed that whole process for me. But it's it's we were talking to publishers, but Kate contacted me directly. So it's funny how things work out. So yes. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. And um, I think a really, really big lesson for any anyone out there who are experts in their field who want to write about their expertise. This is so important because you can write a proposal and you can start building those relationships, but nothing is going to beat the fact that you were interviewed in New Magazine, which is, I think, the highest circulation weekly magazine in this country. Um, you know, that is the kind of thing that gives you authority as an expert. This idea that um that that publications like that are printing your expertise. Um, so, and this is why I'm always recommending to people that I work with that they're always thinking about not just about their proposal, but also thinking about like how am I creating authority around what it is I talk about. That's so interesting. I hadn't realized it had come about from that. And so your first book, um, Self-Care Revolution, which is really wonderful. And like I said, it was the first time I'd read about self-care in a way that didn't make me want to throw the book across the room. Like, because that's what all the previous ones had done. I had just been like, they had just felt like they were talking about bubble baths was the sort of seemed to be the gist of previous stuff. And this was the first time I felt any kind of 
any kind of depth to the work, both professional and also the personal experience that you go into it in it. Um, but so after that, how has that relationship evolved now when you're thinking about your next book? Is it are you is it you in in conversation and collaboration with the publisher to kind of working out what it is that would be next like what what they think the market is interested in what you think readers are telling you after reading your previous book that they're interested in or is it coming entirely from you and where your interests are lying it's been a little bit of both and i've been so lucky to have that relationship um yeah so over the last 5 years there have been ideas that um, Kate had suggested, what do you think of this? And I've said, yes, let's do it. There have been other ideas like um, self-care for tough times. I wanted to have an opportunity to take a look at how it, it's a it's a different toolkit mm. from self-care, rev- self-care revolution, which is, you know, when life is smooth, these are the things that we can do. But during stress, loss and change, we need a specific skill set. Mm. And I wanted to dive deeper into that. And breathe the journal. That was Kate's idea. Yeah. Um, Stand tall like a mountain started off as um, mindfulness, and I said, "Okay, but can can we make it self care?" And it was essentially looking at um, the same framework that I developed in Self Care Revolution, but taking a look at how we could make that applicable for families, mm. how we can engage in nourishing practices together as a family. And then I was thrilled to have the opportunity to write. Um, this book will help make you happy, which is my first book for kids to read themselves. Because Mm. as my children got older, I realized they didn't want to always be read to, you know, there's a great resource, but they wanted to own it. They wanted to take it off and squirrel it away in their bedroom and for it to be theirs. So that was a joy to have the opportunity to write that. And that came about by, I chaired a, a, a panel event for, at a conference in children's publishing. And I was so lucky that on the panel, there was a commissioning editor for Ren and Rook and we got chatting and she said, I think you'd be the ideal person to write this book. And I'm like, yes, amazing. I've been looking for that opportunity. So again, it comes down to saying yes to things like chairing that Mm. panel event that was totally outside of my comfort zone, but I'm so glad I did because it's all, it's all relationship building. So it's been a really interesting process of, I present my ideas, Aster, Kate's moved on now. I, I had I've, I've been lucky to work with a whole variety of different people. There's it's it's a melting pot of ideas, and we see what the market says yes to, and we keep going. It's a joy. <laughs> I can't stop. <laughs> Good, don't stop. I love that. I love that. Please don't stop. <laughs> and um and so, do you imagine? Do you see more children's books in the future? Do you think? Do you imagine there might be uh, some more? I'd love the opportunity to write again. I'd love to. So, this book will help make you happy. That's for nine to twelve year olds. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to to write a picture book for younger ones to read with their parents. I'd love to do something for teens. Mm. Um, yeah, there's definitely definitely more more to tap into there yeah love to do a deck of cards I think a deck of cards for teams would be lovely yeah yeah oh I can totally see that I can totally Mm. see that oh that's so exciting so there's still there's still plenty of things that are keeping you excited about writing and publishing then yeah well the fact is we keep learning and growing as individuals my skill set keeps growing there are different applications um so yes lots of ideas still bubbling away and I'd love to talk to you about, um, you know, as somebody who 
is juggling many different hats professionally um, and different kinds of work from one-to-one to corporate, like you say, you know, pe- panel events, um, you work with an app as well, um, as well as your writing. Do you, ha- are you starting to get like a, I guess, a rhythm and a pattern to how you like to, to write your books? Is there a certain, do you, does your, does your week or month look a certain kind of way? Do you like to do a deep dive into writing certain days of the week and then do other work on other days? Or how, how does your schedule look now that you've, you're on book number eight? I'd love to say that there's regularity and rhythm to it. Um, funnily enough, I, I think I did most of my writing during the pandemic, which was just bonkers because I didn't have a spare second Mm. to myself homeschooling two kids and sharing one bloody device it was just ridiculous Mm. um I became very skilled at writing a couple hundred words a day I used to honestly when I was writing um sit to get fit the kids would be in the bath I'd be sitting outside the bathroom door watching them I knew they were safe and I would sit with the the, honestly the worst ergonomic setup possible (laughs) laptop (laughs) on the floor on my lap Pecking, I literally wrote 300 words a day because they were there, they were safe, and I could just focus on this thing and get it done. That's how I wrote Sit to Get Fit. Rest to Reset was a totally different scenario. The kids had gone back to school, and I, I had a fairly large chunk of my diary free for sort of like September, October, and I just I wrote a couple thousand words a day. Mm. And I, effectively, I wrote that entire manuscript in about two or three weeks because wow. I had that time to devote. And it's only 15,000 words long, or I think, something like that. I've forgotten. Um, but the book of, say, I think Self-Care Revolution was 30,000 words, Self-Care for Tough Times, 40,000 words. I had to chip away at those things. And I felt, I, I guess, with all of my books, there's some kind of framework. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that makes, once I've got that in my head, there's, that's the anchor. Yeah, And then, the structure of the book just flows from that. And I can just, you know, each chapter is on a different, you know, spoke of the vitality wheel. It all just sort of flows like that. So talk to me about how you come to your framework. Um, I love that you were talking in, back in the beginning, you were saying that you would call your mum in Australia and you would talk through those different pillars to see if that work. Is it? Do you find talking through your framework out loud is a really good way for you to um, process and to decide whether or not it's functioning in the way that you need it to function. Yeah. I would say probably before that though, is a whole heap of time where there are two approaches. One, I go for a run and I deliberately try not to think about it Mm -hmm. or I go for a run or a walk and I deliberately try to nut it out. (laughs) Generally when I'm moving, I get my insights when I'm moving. I also get my insights at 2am when I'd rather not, but we've got to just go with what works, right? (laughs) Forever taking notes. I have always got, like in the front of my journal, in the front of my diary, I've got like notes so I can always jot things down because it just, it doesn't stop, does it? Um, It definitely helps though to do a little bit of verbal processing. Mm. And you've got to choose the right person. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? How, and we, and we all work really differently, but sometimes also choosing to switch how we're doing it. Sometimes I start by just thinking and processing, like you're saying, like walking or running. Um, and then I might write stuff down 
And sometimes it's in like a mind map type situation where I'm trying very deliberately not to write in a super linear way, just to kind of make sure I can see connections where I'm not seeing before. Mm. And then um, once I've got that a bit more solid, then I might write more in terms of prose and then I might talk talk to somebody about it. And that, Mm. and that comes very last for me as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, we've got to we've got to nurture the ideas. You yeah. don't want to be asked too many questions too soon, right? There, there has to be that 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 time to literally water the earth, to direct the sun's rays, let it grow, let it be a bit more robust before someone says, "Yeah, but how about?" Hang on, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But really, be so tender with these ideas and give them space to grow. Yeah. Oh, I really love that image. That's a really beautiful image. Yeah. So yeah, the verbal processing can maybe be later in the journey, but also the right kind of person who is perhaps going to listen first, ask a little bit, but not um, try and dig up the earth too much just yet. Mm -hmm. Yes. Gently, gently, gently does it. Yeah. Gently. (laughs) Indeed. Oh, and so, um, Oh, um, I also wanted to ask you a bit about storytelling because I feel like that's a thread that also holds your work together. You write very practical how-to books, but there is always a narrative thread and there is always a connection to story through that. And I guess you've sort of slightly answered that question for me already, that you come from the perspective of of wanting to be a writer first. But to me, in a way, perhaps that's why not just your approach, you, your very practical and kind of compassionate approach, which I really believe in is what draws me to your work. But also you very much use story to help the reader understand um, these concepts and how to apply these concepts. Is that something that you have understood from the beginning is a particular skill you have, or is it, was it just like an, or is it just sort of more an unconscious way that, that you get your message across? Well, I think with self-care revolution, I wanted I wanted to share that lived experience because I think that's it's that shared humanity mm. that draws people in and it helps them understand themselves and it validates how they're feeling. So that was a really integral part of writing that book. And then when I take a look at the approach um, I used in Stand Tall Like a Mountain, I I I didn't want to be disclosing aspects of family life there because it just felt like I needed to be very careful with what I shared of my own motherhood experience Mm. because obviously I'm talking about parenting and I didn't want my kids to pick up that book and say how dare you use that anecdote of when I was two years old and threw food against the wall whatever do you know what it just it had to be a very different different approach but there's still there's still practical real world examples because it, mm. you know, it, there's no point in having these abstract concepts. It's got to be anchored in real life. Mm. And we've got to be, it's, it's all about creating meaning. And I think storytelling is a really powerful means of, of, of cultivating meaning and understanding. Mm. Yeah. And do you find when you're working in other ways, so working one-to-one with people or working in sort of with groups of people in more corporate situations and stuff, do you find it's the storytelling that helps people kind of grasp onto some of these concepts? Yes. Yeah. It's that human element. It's bringing it home to something relatable. And it's also just sharing the journey. We're all just sharing the journey. It's not like I've got this licked and I'm, you know, 
self-care quit. There's none of that nonsense. It's like, I'm just working this out and this, this is what's worked for me. And this mm-hmm. is, like I shared, that spectacular failure that then led me to this thing and it's, this is life. And if we can share all the messy bits, then that's that's what this is about, learning and growing together. And do you, um, in terms of giving yourself a moment to reset, do you, um, as a writer, do you turn to other people's writing as well? Is that a natural thing for you to do, to turn to fiction or nonfiction? Is that part of your way of resetting in your everyday life? Yeah, it is. I love reading, but I, I have to admit, I do tend to read books that are going to give me another idea for another book myself. <laughs> I, I I haven't read a lot of um, nonfiction recently. Hang on, fiction? Oh, my God, I've forgotten. <laughs> um, that's something I would like to do more of. Hmm. Yeah. But it's like there are different seasons of life, aren't they? I'm yeah. enjoying podcasts and TED Talks and there are so many different ways of of, of feeling nourished. Um, right now it's just... The, the thing that I do to reset is just going for a walk yeah. along the canal and seeing if I can find my kingfisher. That's the thing that yeah. makes me feel alive. <laughs> I love that most. I love that. I love that. Um, sometimes it is just something so small and tiny that just completely takes you back to level in a way, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's been so lovely to talk with you today about your latest book. Um, I really, really recommend it. I think particularly writers out there who are juggling a lot of things, there'll be so much in there that I think you'll find helpful, um, including talking about concepts like guilt and things like that, which I know is a big problem for writers um, because it does feel like, especially if our writing is not paying us very much at the moment or not paying us anything, that it can be really difficult to prioritize that, even though it's nourishing you in other ways. So I would very much recommend that everybody take a look. It is such a great book. And like I said, it feels like to me, it feels like this right time, like I'm ready. I'm ready to kind of get out of crisis mode and reset. Oh, Penny, I hope it brings all the freshness, all the all the rejuvenation. Yeah, it's what we need. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's a joy, Penny. Thank you. 